the feeding of the 5,000, a story loved by children and adults alike. I can still remembering it first read in church when I was a child. My mind's eye imagined this huge grassy field with families laying all about, the children running rather wildly as they do at a concert in Ballard Park. Along the edges of the crowd, I imagined the apostles gathering in small groups, whispering among themselves about what was going on as the over-functioning often do in parish churches. Do you think this is the crowd Jesus really wanted? Do you think they understand him? And as the afternoon drew on and night began to fall, they became more and more anxious. How in the world could all these folks be fed? And if we don't, if we send them away empty, will they pick up stones and throw them? Next, my mind's eye saw one of the apostles walking towards Jesus, holding the hand of a little boy, the boy carrying a lunch basket in which his grandmother had put five loaves and two fishes before she sent him off with his uncle to go see this Jesus. What happened after that? I have no idea. I do remember that it says Jesus took the loaves and fishes and gave thanks to God for them and then distributed them among the people. But I have no idea what happened. My mind's eye next sees the apostles dragging around these huge baskets like roustabouts at the circus, collecting up all the remains until the baskets are overflowing. The thing that fascinated me was that all the preachers focused on that middle section, which I still can't understand. They said, are miracles really possible? Is it scientifically possible to turn five loaves into 10,000? Is this just myth? 
When I got to college, my New, New Testament professor had no doubt at all. This story never took place. That was the way they talked about things. God would not establish the laws of physics and then himself violate them. Didn't happen. I was never convinced. Got off to seminary and it didn't sound much different. There, one of the professors suggested maybe what happened was this little boy shared his loaves and fishes and instead of eating them all himself, Jesus shared them with those gathered around him. And that molded everybody to throw back their robes and unfold their own baskets that they had brought. And so it was a crescendo of generosity. Uh, maybe you buy it. I still don't know what happened. I don't have a clue. But what I need to tell you is that without this story, I could barely make it through a week or a day. This story is about hope. And I don't know about you, but I've been watching the news this week watching those, if you'll excuse me, fools on both sides of the aisle, more interested in scoring points than in governing our country. They remind me as drunk, of drunken hooligans in a back alley dice game, running after pennies and points and dollars and not caring a whit about the mothers who can't feed their children, or investors that don't know where to put their money, or how we have become a laughing stock. I have needed hope this week. And this story is a story about the generosity of God. It is about God's abundance. It is principally about hope and the limits of practicality. The first day I showed up to work as a parish minister, and I mean right early, I was still adjusting the chair behind my desk and trying to put the blotter into the pad that was on my desk. Remember those days? And the phone rang, and it was the lieutenant at the local precinct. Apparently, the wife and the family in the house next door to our rector had gone over to the new hotel in Fairlane, taken the elevator to the sixth floor, and jumped off the balcony. And the police lieutenant wanted me to go over and tell her husband. He said, we've been looking for the rector, their next door neighbor, all over town, and we can't find him. Can you help us out? And of course, inside me, 
the voice said, absolutely not. I wouldn't have a clue what to say or do. No way. But that's not the way they train, train clergy back then. So I said, sure, I would love to. And as I reached for my winter coat, I said, what in the world am I going to do? I had asked them to send a car over to in front of the rector's house. And I remembered those years I had spent in crisis counseling and the course I took on suicide prevention. I knew it wouldn't help me much, but it was all I had. And so, as I found my car keys, I turned to heaven and thanked God for the little I had as I went to do what I knew I could not do. The miracle that happened that day was that by the time I got to the rector's house, he had come back from the gym, seen the police car, found out what was going on, and went in and talked to the woman's husband. And I could let go of a deep sigh and get back in my car and go back to the office. That was my miracle. When I was in Michigan, Trinity Monroe celebrated their 150th anniversary as a parish. They were the oldest Episcopal parish in Michigan. And they invited the diocese to come down and celebrate with them. And so we had our convention that year in Monroe. And at some point they were invited to stand up and tell stories about their parish. The one I remember is that several years after their first church had been built, sometime between when the altar guild set everything up for Christmas Eve and when it came time for the service, a fire started and their church burned to the ground. As the fire brigade was throwing water on the last of the ashes, apparently the women gathered together, shed some tears, commiserated about they had used every single penny they could find to build that first church. Where would they find it to build another? And then they left. Apparently, a number of those women went home, found their sewing machines, and stayed up all night making little cloth bags. As the sun rose on Christmas morning, they regathered around the ashes, filled their little bags with those wet, cold winter ashes and went around town selling them. And it wasn't long before they had raised money for a second church. They followed what Jesus had done. They took the little bit they had, ashes, gave thanks to God 
for them. And the miracle happened. You know, you don't have to go to Michigan to see that. I experience it almost every day. Last Monday night, the vestry met, and the subcommittee that was helping the search committee put together the narrative profile, the group that was working on our outreach and mission efforts, you all recall, I'm sure, that several years ago when things got financially tight and the vestry decided they couldn't keep raiding the endowment, among other things, the mission committee budget got cut from 70000 to $500. Now, we all hope it will be restored but the group that put together the report on what happened in mission, in outreach, last year at St. Stephen's, the folks in that subcommittee are not wordy folks. And they used a very small font, but the list of things that took place in Mission and Outreach took four pages to describe. And it did not even include the outreach enabled through the Nutmeg Festival. They also talked to the people involved in that mission. And they said, yes, we are disappointed we can't write those checks anymore. But this work is so meaningful. And each year we're able to do more and more are helping us at it. Is that not a miracle? Take your $500, give thanks, and see what God can create with God's people. Another vestry meeting, we heard about our financial situation and the need of our roofs to be replaced. Six weeks later, the Raise the Roof Capital Campaign had organized, gotten out the message, people gathered for a wonderful celebration dinner. And we had raised close to $200,000 to work on the first roof. In these economic times, we hope to begin in two weeks. You know, I, I don't know if you believe in miracles. But I think amazing things can happen when we look at the challenges in front of us, when we admit there is no practical way 
that we can accomplish those challenges. And yet we give thanks for them and ask God's blessing and watch amazing things take place. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.